Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. A new year, time for new growth. Grow your education and skills with Herzing University. Our online behavioral health programs fit your schedule and time. From an eight-month diploma program in health and human services to a 36-month bachelor's in psychology. Grow your behavioral health career with us wherever you are in your education. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Visit us online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. The Peter Schiff Show. I'd like to thank Indeed for supporting my podcast. Indeed is the job site that makes hiring as easy as one, two, three. Post, screen, and interview all on Indeed. If you're hiring, you need Indeed. Get started right now with a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Peter. This offer is valid through June 30th. Terms and conditions apply. Well, all of the U.S. stock market averages finished the day and the week in the black. It was a holiday-shortened first week of June, but it was generally positive for U.S. stocks, also slightly positive For the dollar, the dollar index managed to eke out a small gain on the week. U.S. bonds also up a little bit, so yields decline. Not a great week for gold and silver, although the losses were mitigated today. Gold off a bit, maybe about 10, 12 bucks on the week. We're back below 1,900, 1,891. Silver back below 28, 2779, I think is where we finished the week up 35 cents on the day. But we had big drops in both gold and silver yesterday and a big rise in the dollar. Almost all of those moves being reversed today, although not quite completely. Gold still down a bit because it was down 30 bucks yesterday and only up about 20 today. The dollar index lost back almost all of yesterday's gains. And the whipsaw was the result of the employment numbers that came out on Thursday and then again on Friday. On Thursday, we got the ADP employment report. These are private sector jobs. Now, normally, this report would have come out on a Wednesday. But I guess because Monday was the Memorial Day holiday, they pushed this back to Thursday. So we got the ADP report and then the official government report back to back. And that's where we had all this volatility because we had diametrically opposed 
reports. The ADP number came out well above estimates. The consensus was for 650,000 jobs to be added, and that followed the 742,000 jobs that were added in April. They ended up revising the April number down from 742,000 to 654,000, but the May number came in at 978,000, well above the consensus. In fact, it was above the upper range because the estimates ranged from a low of plus 425,000 jobs to a high of 900,000 jobs, and we exceeded the upper end. So the dollar benefited from this beat and gold sold off. Again, the idea being that, oh, all of this job creation means that the economy is stronger, is going to put more pressure on prices, so more pressure on inflation. Therefore, the Fed is more likely as a result of this strong ADP number to tighten rates sooner, to start tapering its asset purchases sooner. And of course, that feeds into the buy the dollar, sell the gold mentality. The algorithms kick in and we immediately had this reaction in the currency market and in the gold market. But again, all of this is wrong because it continues to assume that the Fed is actually going to pay attention to these numbers and it's going to cause them to tighten policy. The Fed doesn't care about these numbers because it can't tighten monetary policy no matter how good these numbers appear because the only reason they appear good is because the Fed has got the economy on artificial life support with all its QE and 0% interest rates. And in fact, the matter is they have to maintain the 0% interest rates and they have to continue to administer larger and larger doses of QE in order to keep this comatose patient alive. So the markets still don't get that. They still expect that you're going to see some type of tightening. And that was the catalyst for this rise. But again, in my mind, and what I said or tweeted out as soon as I saw this reaction was this was just another gift opportunity for people who want to sell dollars and buy gold to fade into that trade, in particular for Russia. Because earlier that morning, or I think maybe it was overnight, we got the news that Russia was going to sell the remaining U.S. dollars that it held in its sovereign wealth fund. Now, normally you would think, hey, why wouldn't they unload all their dollars and then mention that they got rid of them? But I guess they knew that it wouldn't even impact the market because nobody really cares. Uh, It's just Russia. Although to me, it is indicative of a trend that is going to gather significant momentum. But what Russia announced is even though it had already diminished the dollars weighting in its sovereign fund, it was going to take that weighting down to zero. And what it's going to do with the dollars it sells, it's going to add to its positions in other fiat currencies, namely the euro and the Chinese yuan, but also to a lesser extent, the yen, the pound sterling, and most particular, gold. Interesting for all you Bitcoin aficionados, the Russian Sovereign Wealth Fund is not going to be buying any Bitcoin with the dollars it is unloading because this has been something that the Bitcoin 
uh, pumpers have been touting that central banks were going to start adding Bitcoin to their balance sheet. Well, certainly Russia has no intention of doing that. Even though it is selling its dollars, it is opting for other fiat currencies and real money, gold. It has no intention of putting any of its uh, balance sheet into Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency. But the markets completely shrugged this whole thing off and we got this rally in the dollar and sell off in gold, which was a gift to the Russian sovereign fund because now they're able to sell dollars into the rally and buy gold into the decline. And I'm pretty sure they took advantage of this gift horse opportunity uh, that they were presented. And of course, the entire move ended up being reversed today because we got a official government non-farm payrolls report that was in effect the mirror image of the ADP report that came out yesterday. And in fact, I'm sure that a lot of people following the release of the stronger than expected ADP report, they were probably ready for a stronger than expected government report but that's not what we got. And the expectation for May was for the addition of 650,000 non-farm payroll jobs. And that would have been a big improvement on the 266,000 jobs, which was originally reported for April, which was a big miss back then. They did revise that one slightly higher in contrast to ADP. So now that one is 278,000. But instead of getting the 650 anticipated, we only created 559,000 jobs in May, well below consensus in the range, but closer to the lower end of the range, which was 400,000 on the low side to 950,000 on the high side. Now, on the unemployment numbers, that did come down. It was 6.1% in the prior month, and the estimate was for a decline to 5.9, and we actually declined even more to 5.8. But one of the reasons for the decline is that the labor force participation rate went down. It was supposed to go up. In the prior month, it was 61.7%. And the expectation was, hey, the economy is reopening, So maybe some of these workers are going to come off the sidelines and come back into the game and be in the labor force. Instead, participation went in the other direction. And instead of going up a tenth, it slipped a tenth down to 61.6%. So one of the reasons that the unemployment rate dropped is because some of the people who used to be unemployed are no longer looking for work. They don't have jobs, but now they're not looking. And because they're content to not have a job and are not looking, they are not officially included in the ranks of the unemployed, even though they are not out there working and contributing to the economy. And of course, one of the reasons that a lot of people choose not to look for work is because the government has made it very lucrative for people not to work. And so that continues to be a drag on the economy. Average hourly earnings, they shot up more than expected. They were up 0.7% in April. And instead of coming in at up 0.2, they came in at up 0.5. And year over year, we increased from an upwardly revised 0.4 for the prior month, originally 0.3. Expectation was for the May increase year over year to be 1.6. So we got 2.0 
in average hourly earnings year over year, even though the average work week slipped a bit from 35 hours the prior week, which was revived down actually to 34.9. Oh, we got another 34.9. So it only was down relative to the unrevised number, but it matched the revision of 34.9, which was below uh, the 35 hours that had been expected. So Americans working fewer hours, but their employers having to pay them more money to work those hours, obviously, because they are competing with unemployment benefits. And so you have to pay people more money now to give up those lucrative benefits. But what I thought was the worst part of what was overall a bad report. And again, people will say, Peter, how could you say this is a bad report, right? We created 559,000 jobs. That's a lot of jobs. Well, we're not really creating jobs. Remember, these are just jobs that are being restored. It's not like we have this vibrant economy and we're starting up all these new businesses. These are businesses that were ordered to close down and now they're reopening. And so that's all we're doing is getting back all these jobs that we lost. Nothing here is being created. It's really being restored. But the problem is the restoration is happening much slower than was anticipated. And so you can't just look at the headline number and think, oh, it's a strong jobs report because we created 559,000 jobs. You have to look at this report in context of all the jobs that were lost that are now just being restored to existence. But the jobs that are not being restored are the jobs that we really need the most, and those are manufacturing jobs. Oh, before I get to that, I forgot to mention the private sector payrolls. Those were supposed to come out at up 625,000. Big miss there. We only got 492,000 private sector jobs added. And again, the private sector jobs are the ones that count. The government jobs don't make us richer. They make us poorer because everybody working in the private sector has to support the people who are working in the government. In general, we want fewer people employed by government. We'd rather have those people employed productively so they're helping to create value, not helping to destroy it uh, by being in government. In fact, a lot of these people are there enforcing rules and regulations that really undermine the productivity of the economy. So not only do they make the economy weaker, but we've got to pay them uh, to do it. So it's all generally a loss when government is hiring more people. You want government to be lean and mean. You want government to employ as few people as possible so that those workers can be in the private sector helping to create the goods and services that really make our lives better. But getting to the manufacturing numbers, again, which I think is the real problem here. We need manufacturing jobs. And of course, remember Donald Trump, he ran promising to restore our manufacturing might, our greatness. He claims he did it. Of course, you know, he failed miserably. But the trend of our manufacturing sector continuing to deteriorate, that trend continues now under Biden. Last month, we were told originally that we lost 18,000 manufacturing jobs, which was a big number. Well, you know what? It wasn't big enough. We actually lost more. That number was revised to down 32,000 jobs in April. Now, the expectation was that we created 37,000 manufacturing jobs in May. We did create some jobs, but not nearly that many. We only created 23,000 manufacturing jobs. 
But if you really look at how small that number is, to put it in perspective, if we created 559,000 jobs in total on the month, and only 23,000 of those jobs were in manufacturing, that's less than 4% of the jobs that we created are in manufacturing. But really, it gets worse when you look at it over the last two months, because over the last two months, we still netted out with a loss of 11,000 manufacturing jobs against a gain or a restoration of 848,000 service sector jobs. So people are going back to work in the service sector, but we're still losing jobs in manufacturing. But the problem is all these employed workers in the service sector, they want to buy manufactured goods. But the problem is none of these people are actually aiding in the production of these goods. So we're putting paychecks in people's pockets, which enables them to go into the market and buy goods, but nobody in America is helping to produce those goods. In fact, fewer people are producing them now than we're helping to produce them before. So what happens? Well, prices go up. Now, one of the reasons that prices aren't going up even more than they are is because the trade deficits are exploding. And what those Americans are doing is they're taking the money they're earning and they're using it to buy goods that the people in other countries like China worked hard to produce because Americans weren't working to produce that stuff, but somebody had to work to produce it. Those jobs are being created outside the United States and our trading partners are exchanging their goods for our paper. That's one of the reasons that Russia has made its decision to get rid of the U.S. dollars from its sovereign wealth fund. I mean, not only because it's potentially the subject of sanctions uh, from the U.S. and it doesn't really want to hold dollars, but they could read the writing on the wall. In fact, there was an interview on television with the guy from the Russian Sovereign Wealth Fund specifically stating his concern for the massive deficit spending and all the money printing that was being done and how it was going to erode away the purchasing power of the dollar. And Russia doesn't want to be a patsy. They don't want to be left holding the bag uh, with all these dollars. So they can see what the Federal Reserve is doing. They can see this monetary policy. And so they want to get rid of dollars. Well, as Americans are spending those newly printed dollars on all these imported products, our trading partners have more and more dollars that they need to unload onto the market. And so that's going to put even more downward pressure on the dollar. Bigger trade deficits lead to a weaker dollar. Now, if foreigners are willing to recycle those trade surpluses into our financial assets, into our stocks and bonds, well, we can offset our trade deficits by selling the world our financial assets. But if you look at what's going on, the world doesn't want those either. The world wants out of overpriced U.S. momentum stocks. They'd rather buy the value-oriented dividend-paying stocks in their own markets, and they don't need dollars to invest in those stocks. They need local currencies. So there is a glut of dollars on the market, and so the value of those dollars is going to go down. You know, interestingly enough, too, after this report came out, which was obviously weaker than expected. And of course, the media still portrays the U.S. economy as sound because, uh, they again, they focus on the headline number. They really don't give a damn about the loss of manufacturing jobs. They just see that big number and they think everything is okay. And they don't really appreciate 
the context, but there were a lot of people talking about how this number will take pressure off the Fed because it takes pressure off inflation. Because the typical Keynesian spin is that if the economy is not as strong as we thought, if the labor market is not as strong as we thought, then there's not going to be as much pressure on prices, that there'll be somewhat less inflation because the false idea is that inflation is some kind of byproduct of economic growth. That, hey, you know, you have to take the good with the bad, and it's kind of the price we pay for prosperity is we get inflation. Well, if we have less prosperity in the form of less economic growth and not as many people working, well, then we're going to have a little bit of a benefit because we're not going to have as much inflation. And this is supposedly good for the stock market because it means the Fed is not going to have to take the punch bowl away. Maybe they won't have to raise rates sooner. They won't have to taper because a weaker economy takes some of the upward pressure off inflation. They've actually got it ass backwards. It's the reverse. The weaker the economy is, the more upward pressure we get on consumer prices. Now, eventually, the economists and these market strategists are going to figure this out. But the fact of the matter is, the weaker the economy is, the more money the Federal Reserve prints to artificially stimulate it. That is inflation. So the longer the Fed continues to print money, the more upward pressure is put on prices. But there's actually a double whammy here because as people are not productively employed, they are producing fewer goods or providing fewer services for people to buy. And then the Fed simply creates money for those people to spend. So in a weak economy, you have two things happening at the same time. You have more money being created out of thin air and given to Americans to go out and buy stuff. But at the same time, fewer Americans are actually working to produce the stuff to buy. So what does that mean? That means we have more money chasing fewer goods. For now, the goods gap right, is filled by imports. And that's why we have these surging trade deficits and this big bottleneck of container ships, you know, off the coast that are queued up, right? But all this is happening, but this puts even more upward pressure on prices. So it's stagflation. And the market strategists, these economists still don't get this. And when they do, that's when we're really going to start to see the explosive move up in the price of gold and a real collapse in the value of the dollar. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. We also got more evidence of weakness in manufacturing today. We got the April factory orders. They were looking for a slight gain of 0.1 following what was originally reported as a rise of 1.1%. That was upwardly revised to a 1.4% gain in March. But instead of adding to that gain, we ended up seeing a 0.6% drop for the month of April. So manufacturing jobs not being created, factory orders down, all this evidences an economy that is fundamentally weak and not an economy that is recovering.
Of course, while everybody was talking about how the weaker-than-expected jobs report was taking some of the pressure off inflation and off the Fed, guess nobody was paying attention to the rising oil price. Oil up again today, closing the day positive, the week positive. Oil was up 81 cents on the day. It closed at 69.62 per barrel, almost $70 a barrel. Remember, we ended last week at $66.32. We just keep on grinding higher. I don't really see any resistance in the oil chart. In fact, if you draw a line from the 2008 high, which was about $148 a barrel, and you connect it to the like 2014 high, and you just draw that diagonal line, you get the top line of a triangle, and we've really just broken out of that overhead resistance. I think we're probably going to have a little resistance, maybe around $80 a barrel, but not much. I think we'll have some more resistance up around 100 kind of as a solid number. And we did trade around $100 a barrel for a while in 2014-2013 timeframe. But looking at the chart, I don't think there's going to be a lot of resistance there either, especially if the U.S. dollar is breaking down. I think we could be back up to $150 a barrel for oil by the end of next year. That's where the real resistance is around the highs from 2008. Eventually, I think we're going to take out those highs and go higher, but that's really where the overhead resistance is. So we've got a long way to go up in the price of oil, which means the price of gasoline has got a long way to go. But also, because we're so much more dependent now on imported oil than we were the last time oil prices were up at 100, it's going to have a much bigger negative impact on our trade deficit, on our economy. And since we're importing so much more stuff, all of that energy is now used to bring all those goods over here. So not only are we looking at the fact that it's going to cost more to produce goods, and of course, in the production of those goods, energy is consumed, but not only will it cost more in terms of energy and other raw materials to make the products, but it's going to cost a lot more to bring those products over here and then to ship the empty containers back to Asia or Europe so they can be filled back up again to make the journey. So all of these costs are going way, way up. doesn't matter about the weak economy. In fact, if the economy gets weaker, we're just going to print even more money, which is going to put even more upward pressure on oil prices, on the trade deficits, downward pressure on the dollar. And it's a self-perpetuating vicious cycle that ends in disaster. Indeed is the job site that makes hiring as easy as one, two, three, post, screen, and interview. And you can do it all on Indeed. You can get a quality short list of candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description faster, and then you only pay for the candidates that meet your must-have qualifications and schedule and complete video interviews in your Indeed dashboard. Indeed makes connecting with and hiring the right talent fast and easy. With tools like Indeed Instant Match, giving you quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your job description immediately. And Indeed offers skills tests that on average reduce their hiring time by 27%. They've got 130 of them to choose from, and then you only see the applicants that meet your criteria and that score well on your tests. According to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all the other job sites combined. 
If you're hiring, then you need Indeed. And you can get started right now with a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job posts at Indeed.com slash Peter. Get a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash Peter. Indeed.com slash Peter. Offer valid through June 30th. Terms and conditions apply. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about what's been going on this week in the so-called meme stocks. And the meme stocks are stocks that are just very popular on, you know, Reddit, Wall Street bets, right? People are reading about them. They're blogging about them, tweeting about them. And so people are just buying these stocks just because everybody is talking about them and there's a lot of momentum in them. And so they're going up. And so people want to jump on a moving train. And sometimes it's about, hey, we're going to make a political statement. We're going to stick it to the man. We're going to run the shorts, which was the story with respect to GameStop. The whole idea that this is some type of legitimate style of investing is complete nonsense. And, you know, the reason I wanted to talk about it this week, and I've mentioned it before, but we really had an incredible move on Wednesday in shares of AMC, which is a company that owns movie theaters and was in a lot of trouble uh, in the last year. The 52-week low on the stock is $1.91. And on Wednesday, it got as high as $72.62. Although I saw it trading, I think, closer to 80 bucks on Thursday morning, you know, before the open in the pre-market. But it basically doubled in price on massive volume on Wednesday. And there was no real news out on the company. In fact, the only news was a story that the CEO of the company had decided to kind of reach out to all these Reddit shareholders or Wall Street best guys because the stock was up quite a bit the day before. And the news was that anybody who self-identified as a shareholder on the internet could qualify for free popcorn uh, when they go to one of their movies. And there were some other perks, but in, so supposedly free popcorn was the catalyst for buying the stock, even though technically you didn't actually have to buy the stock. You just had a claim you owned the stock and you can get the free popcorn. But the fact that they're giving away free popcorn, I mean, how is that good news? I mean, movie theaters make a lot of money selling popcorn. I mean, it's a very high margin a product, right, at the concession stand. You know, so they make a lot of money when you buy that stuff. Now, if they give away the popcorn for free, I mean, that's obviously not good news for a company that's already hurting. I mean, this company was on its way for bankruptcy. I mean, the bonds were trading for pennies on the dollar because the bondholders knew that they weren't going to get their money back. In fact, the bondholders were going to become the owners of this company until all these people started buying this stock based on these chat rooms. And so I'm watching the coverage of this on CNBC and they have all these people that are talking about AMC. You know, they finally stopped talking about Bitcoin for a while and they can start focusing on AMC. And so they're talking about what's going on in AMC and you get one guy after another, seasoned investors, been around for a long time, kind of saying, well, you know, I just don't get this new style of investing. It's not the way I buy stocks. I mean, clearly there's no reason for this because... The valuation isn't there. I mean, I think that the valuation of the company got to $30 billion uh, on Wednesday. And that's just the value of the stock, not the enterprise value that includes all the bonds. I mean, all I have is about a thousand movie theaters, not quite that many, most of them losing money. Uh, 
I mean, it, it, it's a very, very bad business. It was a bad business before COVID, and it's a worse business now because a lot of people are staying at home. They're streaming movies at home. A lot of these companies now are releasing the movies instead of at the theater. Brand new movies are coming out in streaming services. So why go to the movies and pay you know, 10, 12, 15 bucks a person to bring your family to a movie when you can stay at home and just watch the same movie at the same time on what probably is a big screen TV, you know, high definition, 4K, whatever you got, your home theater. So these movie theaters are dying out, yet somehow this is the stock that all these meme traders decided they all wanted to pile into. And so the thing is going up and you have these Wall Street guys scratching their heads. Hey, I don't understand this new style of investing. Instead of coming out and admitting what it is, this is not investing. This is just gambling. And it's not new. I mean, people have been gambling uh, for a long time. I mean, this is really uh, Ponzi's or pyramids, chain letters, whatever you want to call it. The only thing that's new about this is the way it's being done, right? You've got all these novice investors, inexperienced investors, have no clue what they're doing, right? They now have trading apps, Robinhood Online. All of a sudden, the U.S. government sends out a bunch of stimulus money. So now they've got all this cash. And so they just buy all these stocks that they're reading about in these chat rooms. They don't understand anything about fundamental analysis. They're just buying whatever's getting hyped up. And, you know, there's so much cash. The Federal Reserve has basically turned the stock market into an outright casino and everybody is gambling. Nobody here is investing. And this is going to end horribly for everybody, just like when I talked about it initially when we had the big run-up in GameStop, now we're having this run-up in AMC, but it's not just AMC. Bed Bath & Beyond, BlackBerry, you have a few of these other stocks that are having huge moves up because people are piling into them. But the only people who are going to make money in these stocks are the people who sell before the music stops. This is a zero-sum game. Some people are going to make money and some people are going to be left holding the bag because AMC is not going to generate a profit. They're not going to pay dividends. None of these shareholders are going to make money owning a part of this business. So the only way you make money in AMC is if you buy it and then you find a bigger idiot to pay a higher price than you did. But eventually you're the last idiot and you get stuck holding the bag. But actually, For the small traders who are buying this stock, it's not really going to be a a zero-sum game. It's going to be a negative-sum game because the company is unloading stock onto the market. In fact, on Thursday morning before the open, one of the reasons the stock reversed and opened lower was because the company announced like $500 million worth of stock, 11 million shares they were going to unload, and they sold more stock today. They've sold like over a billion dollars worth of stock. So the company is creating these shares out of thin air and just selling them into the market. So these buyers are buying it from the company. So they're not enriching another guy who's selling the stock. The money is just going right into the company. And here's the irony of it all. The people who are being enriched are the bondholders because now the bonds are going up. The company is taking this money that it is getting by selling these shares to a bunch of idiots who are buying them on their trading apps and they're taking this money and repaying bondholders that we're not going to get repaid. And if you think you're sticking it to the man by buying shares of AMC, 
you're just giving the man your money. Who do you think owns these bonds? You think it's small investors that own AMC bonds? No, it's hedge funds. It's institutions. It's some of these speculators that bought this debt on the cheap because it was heavily discounted. And now they're getting a windfall because the company is now able to repay debt that it never could have repaid. What would have happened was the bondholders would have ended up owning this company. Instead, a bunch of idiots are going to end up owning the company and the bondholders get a get-out-of-jail-free card because of these pump-and-dump schemes going on with these meme stocks. The most ridiculous part of this at-the-market offering is in the prospectus that accompanies the new shares. The company is basically warning potential buyers not to buy the stock. The prospectus reads... Don't buy the stock unless you're prepared to lose all your money because you're going to lose almost all your money because the stock isn't worth anywhere near the price that you're going to pay. But of course, the company knows that investors aren't going to read it or they're not going to care. They're going to buy it anyway. That's why they're selling it. In fact, there's a two and a half percent commission embedding it in a deal for the brokerage firms that participate in the scam. They're basically paying these brokerage firms to rip off their customers by deliberately selling them a stock that they know is going to collapse, but everybody is doing it anyway. But yeah, are there going to be some traders that are getting in on this? Yeah, there was, you know, hedge funds. There are people who are making money, but there's going to be so many more people who are losing money on these stocks. And it's amazing that they can't call this out. And I think part of the reason is, you know, once you've drunk the crypto Kool-Aid and you've kind of legitimized cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, well, then anything goes. I mean, once you could buy something that has absolutely no value and you're just going to tout that, well, then you might as well buy these mean stops because you've already decided that valuation means nothing as long as something is going up. And that's where these guys are looking at some new style of investing because they see it going up and they're like, well, it must be legitimate because it's going up and people are making money because they bought something that went up. No, it's only up temporarily until the whole thing collapses. The fact that the price of the stock has gone up means nothing. It doesn't validate the legitimacy of what's going on. It just highlights the absurdity of what's going on. And people have to be willing to call this out. Don't try to validate it. None of this matters. Yes, there are some people who are sitting on paper profits. Most of those paper profits are going to vanish. I mean, look at how stupid it is. Yesterday... I was able to sell, and this is in my own account, and I'm not giving any investment advice, but I'm just illustrating the absurdity. So yesterday morning, and this is after the company had already announced that they were dumping their shares, right? The stock initially gapped down. It rallied up to about $60 a share, which was up on the day, right? I forget how much it was up. But they had rolled out these brand new strike prices. So there were $145 calls that expire in two weeks, $145 call on a $60 stock. So in order for a $60 stock to get to $145, it's got to more than double. Because if it doubles, it's only at $120. These options had two weeks to expire. And I was able to sell these options for $14.95 a contract. So call it $15 a contract. That means some idiot is paying me, let's say, to buy 10 of these for the right to buy 1,000 shares of a stock at $145 a share for the next two weeks when the stock is only $60, they're paying me $15,000 for the right to do that. I mean, there's no way the stock's going to get up to $145 
in two weeks. Yet these fools are paying these crazy prices because they're hoping that the stock is higher than that and they'll be able to buy it. But all I can think of is imagine somebody being dumb enough to actually forcing me to sell them shares of AMC at $145 a share. I mean, I wouldn't even mind if I actually got exercised into a short position on this stock and I ended up being short AMC at $145, the stock's probably going to fall back down to $5. I mean, who knows? Now, it probably won't go bankrupt now because they're getting out of debt because they're taking all this money that a bunch of idiots are giving them and they're paying off the bondholders. So now instead of the bondholders being left holding the bag, it's all these Reddit raiders and Wall Street best traders who are going to get stuck holding the bag. And the big institutions got lucky. But this is not new. This is not a new style of investing. This is just a new way to gamble. It's a, a modern version of these Ponzi's or chain letters. I mean, people have been falling for these kind of cons for a long time. But this is a byproduct of what the government is doing with the 0% interest rates, from the Federal Reserve with all this money that's being printed out and sent out by the government to people. And they just take the money and they take it to this giant casino and, and gamble with it. And, you know, it's going to really do a lot of damage long term because these investors who are buying these stocks, they think they're investing. They don't realize what they're doing. And this is probably going to sour them against making legitimate investments in the future because they're going to be so badly burned now with this stuff, uh, that it's going to turn them off any kind of legitimate investing. And I've talked about this too in the past. What are the reasons that so many novice investors are falling victim to these scams is because government regulations have made it so expensive for full service investment firms to work with a small investor because of the cost of complying with the regulations that they don't have access to professional help. They have to do it themselves. And of course, it is very inexpensive now to trade on your own and just do it yourself. And so that's what people are doing. And they are predictably making a lot of bad mistakes. And this is going to have big consequences uh, in the future for not only these investors, but for the overall economy. In fact, AMC is really a microcosm for the entire U.S. economy. Because when you think about it, anybody in theory who's buying into AMC they're buying a business that really no longer exists. They're buying what AMC once was in the past. And maybe they're buying what they fantasize it may become in the future, but they're completely overlooking the reality of what AMC is right now. And that's really what everybody does when they look at the U.S. economy and then by extension, the U.S. dollar, because America is living off its past reputation it's enjoying the status of a nation that really no longer exists because America has almost nothing in common with the America of the past, but it's the America of the past upon which the dollar's reserve currency status now rests. It's because we were this powerful economy. We manufactured everything. We were the low-cost producer of high-quality manufactured goods. We had these huge trade surpluses. We had this huge current account surplus. We were the world's largest creditor nation. We were really the antithesis of what we've become, yet everybody is still buying the dollar, not based on what America is now, but based on what America once was. So effectively, the U.S. dollar really amounts to a mean currency. And I think 
all the bag holders who get stuck with AMC stock, they're going to suffer the losses. And the same fate is going to befall people who get stuck holding the bag on U.S. dollars. Speaking about the mistakes that investors make, there is a big Bitcoin conference going on now in Miami. It started today. I think it finishes tomorrow. I think something like 50,000 people have come to Miami to participate in a lot of these events, although I think the actual conference itself only holds about 12,000 people. So it's standing room only inside, but there's a lot of people who are there uh, to participate in some of the other events surrounding this probably the biggest conference in Bitcoin history. Among the attendees is my 18-year-old son, Spencer. So he is down there uh, with a bunch of other uh, Bitcoin maximalists. This is not like a crypto conference. So you don't have a lot of uh, Ether guys down there or Dogecoin guys, or if they are, they're, they're kind of in the closet. This is really the Bitcoin maximalist where everything else is a shit coin and Bitcoin is the only crypto that doesn't stink. Well, in my mind, they're all shit, uh, but don't tell that to the Bitcoin maximalists. But they're all down there, and I was listening to some of the, the speakers uh, this morning. In fact, one of the opening speakers, and maybe the very first speaker, was former congressman, former presidential candidate Ron Paul, who came down there. And of course, a lot of people who are libertarian are big fans of Ron Paul's. And a lot of libertarians are among the, the true diehard uh, Bitcoin faithful. So he's really a hero. He's a hero of mine as well. And he was down there. And you know, a lot of people think that Ron Paul is in favor of Bitcoin, that he's, he believes in Bitcoin. He does not. And you'll notice, or you know, if you listen to his speech, he did not endorse Bitcoin. He did not stand on that stage and tell people to go out and buy Bitcoin because he doesn't believe in Bitcoin. How do I know? Because he told me. He believes in real money. He believes in gold and silver, but he also believes in competition and he believes in freedom. And he believes if people are going to be dumb enough to buy Bitcoin, well, the government should let them. You know, so he wants competition and he wants the best money to win. He knows the best money is gold and silver and gold and silver are going to win. But he's not opposed to other people betting on the losers. So far as Ron Paul's concerned, if people are dumb enough to buy Bitcoin, then the government should let him do it. And he thinks that the government should legitimize all alternative forms of money and not tax it. And I am 100 percent in agreement with Ron Paul. You know, if people are dumb enough to buy Bitcoin, let them do it. Now, that doesn't mean that I believe that people should be able to defraud other people into buying Bitcoin. So you shouldn't be able to lie to people or con them or run pump and dump schemes. But, you know, if people legitimately end up buying Bitcoin because they actually think it's going to work, then go ahead, let them do it. You know, eventually they'll lose their money and they'll, they'll learn a lesson. But a lot of people think that just because Ron Paul is there, that somehow he's a supporter of Bitcoin. He is not. He doesn't see any more value in Bitcoin than I do. But he does understand that he has a lot of his fans uh, that support Bitcoin. So he may not want to just come right out and bash them over the head uh, by telling them what fools they are. But you got to read between the lines. The fact that he's not actually endorsing Bitcoin as a recommendation where he's not telling people because everybody else who's on that podium other than Ron Paul is constantly telling everybody to buy more Bitcoin, buy Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the greatest. Well, Ron Paul did not mention that, but I want to speak in particular about two people uh, whose presentations I listened to. And I just want to focus on 
just one ridiculous point in particular that East One made. I mean, I, there's a lot of ridiculous points, and I don't have that much time on this podcast, so I'm just going to focus on two people and I'm picking one ridiculous point that each one made. The first one being Michael Saylor of MicroStrategy. Of course, I've talked a lot about Michael Saylor on this podcast, but of all the ridiculous things he said today, I think the one that really struck me was when he talked about Bitcoin's use of energy. And of course, Bitcoin, rightly so, has come up with a lot of flack, uh, particularly from Elon Musk, right, who dumped Bitcoin. In fact, now maybe he's officially broken up with Bitcoin because he tweeted out some kind of meme of a guy and a girl breaking up, uh, indicating that maybe he's broken up with either Bitcoin or Dogecoin or, or whatever, but there could be some kind of crypto relationship that's come to an end. But a lot of it started when Elon Musk suddenly discovered all of the energy that is being wasted in the mining of Bitcoin and in powering the Bitcoin network. And so Michael Saylor feels compelled to take this on, right? Because he doesn't want uh, the investment community or the you know, corporate community somehow not buying Bitcoin because they think it's bad for the environment or that it wastes energy. So he basically put his spin on it and he said that Bitcoin is the most energy efficient invention in all of history or whatever the words were that there has never been an asset class that was more energy efficient than Bitcoin. And how did he come up with that? Because obviously, if you look at how much it costs in energy to transact in Bitcoin versus just using any other fiat currency or using, you know, a credit card or, you know, uh, a payment app like a PayPal or a Venmo, it is extremely, extremely high usage of energy. I mean, it's the most inefficient way of transferring value uh, of any other way that you could possibly transfer. So how is it that Michael Saylor is able to get away with saying it's the most energy efficient invention ever devised? Well, here's how he measures energy efficiency. He looked at the market capitalization of Bitcoin which is right around 700 billion right now. Well off its highs, you know, as I'm recording this, Bitcoin is about 37,000 per Bitcoin. You know, at its peak, it was closer to 65,000. So, you know, pretty much double the current market cap. But if you look at the current market cap, it's 700 billion. What Saylor talked about was how much energy has been consumed in Bitcoin relative to this $700 billion of value that has supposedly been created by Bitcoin, because that's the market value of all the coins. And he compared that, for example, I think to other companies, you know, whether it was uh, Google or Apple, and he looked at their market caps relative to how much energy went into those companies, which is a laughable comparison. Because when you're talking about the energy used by Apple, Apple is using energy to produce phones that people are actually using or computers that people are using. All sorts of products are actually being produced. And sure, you need energy to produce those products. Even when he talked about Google, Google is providing a search engine that millions or billions of people are using every day to make surfing the internet more efficient advertisers are taking advantage of this platform. They're using Google 
to connect with their customers or their potential customers. So there's a lot of real value that is associated with the energy that is being used. You can't simply point to the market price of all this Bitcoin and say, oh, we've created all this value. You haven't created anything. There is no value in Bitcoin. 10 years ago, before there were any Bitcoin, right? There is no additional value today because we have, I don't know, 18, 19 a million Bitcoin. Those additional Bitcoin that did not exist 10 years ago did not add any value to the economy the way all the other goods that these other companies produced. This is not real wealth. I mean, you can point to it from one individual. Yes, if I've got a Bitcoin wallet and I've got a million dollars worth of Bitcoin, I can say, yeah, that's my personal wealth, but only to the extent that I can sell the Bitcoin. While the Bitcoin is still in my wallet, I'm not earning any dividends. I'm not earning any interest. I'm not earning any rent. I can convert that claim to actual wealth if I sell my Bitcoin and then I can get wealth. But while it's just sitting in my digital wallet, it just represents a potential claim to wealth. It is not actual wealth in the sense that real estate represents wealth. If I own a piece of property, that's wealth. I can live in that property or I can rent it out. Somebody else could live in it. Housing stock is part of the wealth of a nation. The same thing with plant and equipment in a business. If there's a factory, that factory is wealth because that factory is capable of producing consumer goods uh, that make people's lives better. You can't count the market value of your Bitcoin as wealth because it's not. What Bitcoin is, is a mechanism for transferring wealth. The wealth is transferred from the people who buy Bitcoin to the people who sell Bitcoin. So when somebody sells Bitcoin, they get the wealth from the person who bought it. But no actual wealth is created in the process. Now, look, a lot of people think they're wealthy because they all have all this money, just like people who are buying AMC stock, right? Well, the stock is, you know, almost $60 a share. It was $10 a share a couple of weeks ago. So a lot of people think they have a lot of wealth because they look at the number on their brokerage account and it's a bigger number, but it doesn't mean anything because the stock is never going to pay a dividend and it's going to collapse. The question is, how many people will get out before it collapses and actually turn that paper wealth into actual wealth? The same thing applies to Bitcoin. How many people are actually going to be able to get out before the music stops and all that paper wealth disappears into money heaven? And any real money that people get out of Bitcoin is simply going to be the result of the other people who lost money in Bitcoin, who never got out, right? They put their money in and they get nothing out. So to say that because we have the biggest bubble in history relative to how much energy was consumed to inflate it, right? What Saylor is saying is we've got this $700 billion bubble and we've only consumed X in energy. I don't really know what the number is. So he's saying that this is the most efficient bubble machine in financial history, that we were able to blow a bigger bubble in Bitcoin with less units of energy consumed than was required to inflate any other bubble in financial history. Now, I have no idea if that is the case, but even if it is the case, big deal. This is what you're excited about, that it is an efficient mechanism for blowing bubbles. Yes, but at the end of the day, when the bubble collapses and everybody gets wiped out, we will have wasted all of this energy, 
All of this energy that could have been used for productive purposes was instead squandered on inflating a Bitcoin bubble. Now, the other speaker I want to talk about a little bit was Nick Zabo. And Nick Zabo was giving a talk and it was billed as a history of money. And so he was kind of going over, you know, how we got from gold to Bitcoin, right? And this is the evolution of money. And of course, he's saying that Bitcoin is an improvement on gold, right? It's the next step. It's gold 2.0. And it, it represents an improvement on something that didn't work. And so he, he mentions that gold worked as money. It functioned as money for 4,000 years. He acknowledged that. But then he says that the reason that the world went off the gold standard in 1971 was because gold was too hard to assay, meaning that, you know, you don't really know somebody has gold. How do you really know if it's real gold? Maybe it's not gold. Maybe it's fake, right? Maybe it's tungsten that's painted gold, right? And so he said that it was very expensive and difficult to know whether gold was was real or not. And so that's why we went off the gold standard in 1971, which is complete nonsense. I mean, why is Nick Zabo making this up? Well, he's making it up so it can look like Bitcoin solved this non-existent gold problem. Because what he's saying is, hey, it's very easy to know a real Bitcoin from a fake Bitcoin. And so we solved this big problem that we had in gold that caused us to go off the gold standard. Now that we have Bitcoin, this new invention, well, we can go on a Bitcoin standard because we don't have the problem that we had with gold of trying to authenticate the legitimacy of the gold. Nonsense. First of all, let's assume that that was the case. He admitted that we had gold for 4,000 years. Well, if it was so hard to know whether the gold was real or fake, how did it function as money for 4,000 years? If it was so difficult and expensive to assay the gold, how did it work? The fact of the matter is we had better technology in 1971 to determine whether or not gold was real or not than we had 1,000 years earlier or 2,000 years earlier. So if they were able to figure out whether gold was real in, you know, 1071 or 1071 BC, if they were able to figure out whether gold was real before Christ was born, stands the reason that we could do it in 1971, right? 2000 years after he died, approximately. Obviously, that was not the reason we went off the gold standard. In fact, it has never been easier or cheaper to authenticate gold than it is today. So that had nothing to do with us going off the gold standard. The reason we went off the gold standard was because the U.S. government was broke and the gold standard was standing in the way of bigger, bigger deficits. The reason that we went off the gold standard was not because it didn't work. It's because it worked so beautifully, the government had to get rid of it. The gold standard imposes fiscal discipline on governments, among other things. So governments have to be honest when money is gold. Well, Nixon didn't want to be honest. The country was broke because we ran these huge deficits to finance the Vietnam War, the war on poverty, the mission to the moon, right? We ran big deficits uh, during the 1960s with Lyndon Johnson, Great Society, war on poverty. Nixon continued that uh, when he became president. And so we were running these big deficits. The Fed was printing all this money and the world started to demand gold in exchange for its dollars. 
And so rather than doing the responsible thing and cutting government spending and allowing prices to deflate, we went off the gold standard, not because it was too expensive to know whether or not the gold was real, because the government didn't want the discipline that gold was imposing. The government wanted to keep on printing money. The government didn't want to have to stop the party. The government wants to buy votes. That's what politicians want to do. They want to buy votes. They want to give people something for nothing. You can't do that with a gold standard. The gold standard is inconsistent with these massive deficit spendings, the type of runaway fiscal prophecy that not only exists in the United States, but in a lot of other countries. So that's why governments went off the gold standard. It wasn't because it didn't work. It worked fantastic. But what the Bitcoin people are trying to pretend is that we went off the gold standard because the gold standard didn't work. And now that we have Bitcoin, well, now we can go back on the Bitcoin standard because it solves this flaw in the gold standard. Well, there's no way, even if Bitcoin could work, there's no way the governments are going to go back to Bitcoin because they can't print Bitcoin either. The problems they had with gold, they're going to have the same problem with Bitcoin, right? They just can't print Bitcoin, right? Because there's only 21 million of them. So to the extent that we went on the Bitcoin standard instead of the gold standard, and if the government wanted to spend money, it would have to tax us. It would have to take some of our Bitcoin, right? We'd have to go on a Bitcoin standard where we either were using Bitcoin directly or the government issued a currency backed by Bitcoin, whatever. But then if the government wanted to spend money, well, they would need to raise taxes. So why would they do that? They left the gold standard because they didn't want to be subject to the fiscal discipline of gold. Well, why would they voluntarily become subject to the same fiscal discipline in Bitcoin? They won't. But the reality of it is the people didn't want to go off the gold standard. But of course, a lot of people didn't even understand what was going on. But if you are a person now who wants to protect yourself from inflation and all this money printing, you could buy gold yourself, right? The government you know, isn't going to stop you, but why would you buy Bitcoin instead of gold? There is no reason to, because gold is a legitimate store of value. It's an actual commodity with an actual use case. Bitcoin is nothing, but they're trying to pretend that we went off the gold standard because there was something wrong with the gold standard. There was nothing wrong with the gold standard. The only thing wrong is that we went off the gold standard. And so they're trying to act as if Bitcoin fixes this or Bitcoin solves this. Bitcoin solves nothing. Bitcoin fixes nothing. If you want to restore fiscal discipline to the government, if you want to get rid of runaway government spending, if you want to restore sound money and freedom, if you want to end the bubble bowling and the inflation, if you want to go back to the prosperity of the 19th century, not the technology, but the prosperity and the level of freedom, it's got nothing to do with Bitcoin. We don't have to reinvent the wheel, especially with something that doesn't even roll. What we need to do is go back to what worked, and that's the gold standard. We just have to make sure that the government sticks to it and doesn't abandon it when it becomes inconvenient for the politicians. Because that's when it's most important. It's when it imposes that discipline. It's when it prevents governments from going into debt and, and just printing money and buying votes. That's when we need to have gold. The mistake was allowing Nixon to go off the gold standard in 1971. That did not pave the way for us to now go on some kind of crazy Bitcoin standard. All we have to do is reverse the mistake that Nixon made and restore the gold standard. And as a matter of fact, when Richard Nixon took us off the gold standard, he said that it was only temporary. 
well, you know what? We need to make sure that he at least got that right. We have to make sure that we left it temporarily and we end up restoring it. Yes, 50 years too late, but better late than never. Thank you.